Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Retail strip centers, medical office, land, debt funds, multifamily. There are a lot of ways to generate passive cash flow in real estate. It all comes down to finding the right sponsor. Trevor Thompson got laid off during the pandemic from a job he had for 20 years and has since been passively investing in real estate. Trevor has also been actively involved on a couple of deals as well. So today we have with us a gentleman who, like myself, is invested in a lot of different syndications. And so I have been so excited to have this conversation with him to compare notes and perhaps provide a little value for some listeners that are also investing in other in syndications or thinking about it. This gentleman happens to be Trevor Thompson, a multifamily investor and investor in other assets as well. Trevor, welcome to Street Smart Success. I'm super happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, and you are welcome. Trevor, I know you're in Texas, the Lone Star State, the country of Texas. Are you a, a native Texan or did you move from somewhere else? Like where, where did the Trevor story start? Yeah, so I'm originally from Canada. I uh, spent most of my life in the Niagara Falls area. And then I moved to the U.S. back in 1997 and strangely enough, opened a year-round haunted house in Orlando, Florida, of all things, and then started my next level career with iFly Indoor Skydiving, who about halfway through that career transferred me to Austin, where they set up their new headquarters. And then unfortunately, COVID ended uh, one of the best journeys of my life, but allowed me to do real estate on a full-time basis. I see. So Niagara Falls on the Canadian side, huh? That's why I'm polite. (laughs) <laughs> What's that? That's why I'm polite. All us Canadians are polite. That's that I've I have noticed that. And how how on earth did did your family wind up in of all places Niagara Falls? I think there's a bunch of casinos up there. Uh, I was there a few years ago, and but uh, it seems like an interesting place to be from. Yeah. So there were no casinos when I first was growing up there, and that, and that's just where my family ended up being. They were a little bit more in northern Ontario. And I was actually born in a very small town, like 30 minutes north, called Beamsville. It wasn't even big enough to have a hospital, so I got to get born in the next uh, town over. And then we moved to the Niagara Falls area, and, you know, that, that's where my dad had a job, and he was actually a minister. Then they moved, and I stayed there because um, I fell in love and uh, decided to stay with my girlfriend. I see. Got it. All righty, man. So I fly skydiving. Is that is that a franchise or is that uh, are they all corporate owned and how many of them are there? Yes. Yeah, so I started with the original owner in Orlando, Florida, back in 2000. And he was the, the sole owner of the company and the inventor of the, our technology for the product. Um, and then he took on a partner and then we started growing the company. And so from one location with about 16 employees, uh, we grew to 80 worldwide with a thousand worldwide employees and about 60% company owned and 40% either franchises or actually militaries buying them for real skydiving training. And I personally opened 46 of the 80 locations. So I traveled all over the US and then eventually all over the world um, opening these locations. That sounds cool. And I, uh, I'll be honest with you, I don't even know what indoor skydiving is. Yeah. It sounds, sounds like an oxymoron to me. 
It is. And it's really interesting. So it's a very large building with some fans at the top. A lot of people think they're at the bottom, but it actually sucks the air up. And it's really interesting. You basically just lean forward and the wind catches you and you float on the wind. We fly, we flew kids as young as three years old. And it's so realistic that about 40% of our customer base is professional skydivers training. And like I said, the militaries use them. So there's one at Yuma at the, at the Air Force there, and they use it to train their paratroopers. And the learning curve, of course, is phenomenal on skydiving because you're not free falling to your death in the sky. And, you know, you can actually take your time and practice in a controlled environment. So it's very realistic, the skydiving. But again, as I said, you know, kids as young as three years old fly. Um, it's a suit. Anyone who hasn't done it yet, um, I highly recommend it. It is a blast. Is the purpose twofold? Number one, for training, which you've made clear. But is it also just to do it in and of itself for the fun oh, of it? Yeah. yeah. So it's definitely a bucket list item and uh, sort of a big thing to do. It's our, our number one age of flyers is actually 11 years old. And the reason for that is it's a big portion of our customers come on their 12th birthday. I don't know why it seems to be the one where parents are okay to spend a lot of money. But uh, again, it's really cool team building events. They have an awesome STEM education program for children where you actually can calculate real things that are useful about um, all kinds of uh, different, different things. It's quite amazing. How much revenue does a good one do? You know, so it varies, but uh, some of our, you know, sort sort of our low end locations sort of make about two and a half million a year and high end uh, about six and a half million a year. So quite a bit different depending on city where you are um, and even within a city. So we have two locations in Houston and Dallas. One is hugely successful and the other one is moderately successful. And so kind of very much geography driven. Um, where you kind of have to be where people are looking for recreational things to do that combine with something else. So, for example, we're in the we're in the same parking. We're in the same area as a lot of top golfs, for example. It's the same kind of demographic. I see. Well, it sounds to me, though, I mean, I what do I know? But it sounds to me like it could be like super profitable because I, I guess. I guess the question is like, what's the build out? But once it's operational, I, I wouldn't imagine it requires a ton of employees to run. Yeah, you know, employees are the number one cost. You would think electricity, but it's actually employees and there's not a lot of them. But once you reach this sort of, you know, it costs so much to run it. And then once you can make more money, you know, in theory, you do that with no new expenses, right? So, you know, if a class is half full, you kind of break open even and if it's completely full you triple what your profit is just because it's you know it's the time use of money and sort of the theory right fly an airplane half full you don't make as much money fly it full you make a lot of money um that's very much the analogy we basically sell minutes of time yeah there's no incremental cost once you get beyond a certain level that's that's just interesting well even even this is those a real estate podcast well how, how did you uh, find yourself investing in syndications and uh, how how long have you been investing in syndications? Yeah, so also a very interesting story. At the very first team meeting with iFly, the original owner gave everybody a copy of the Purple Bible, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I read it and went, wow, and then put it on the shelf and kept doing my corporate career, right, which a lot of people do. And, you know, and it was always in the back of my mind, I really need to get on this. I really need to get on this. 
And then we actually got bought out by a private equity company. So for the first time, I had some very substantial, for me at least, disposable income. And I said, okay, well, if this doesn't trigger me making the switch, nothing will. And that's when I started passively investing. And I'll be honest, just passively investing because I knew it was a good, I didn't really know as near as much as I know now, of course. And, you know, it was just, okay, let me get some diversification in my asset allocation. And then the more I learned about it, the more I sold everything else off and started, you know, that's when I started really ramping up. So I started passively investing about four and three quarters of a year ago, to be exact. Um, and I started out, you know, I had a few investments. And then as I started to see the potential of what I was doing, and I started learning more about the space, you know, I basically um, now 90% of my net worth is in real estate. And I get my diversification through different classes of assets, and then two investments outside of Texas. I see. And how did you, so going back almost five years ago, how did you learn about real estate and real estate investing? Yeah, so I went to a lot of those fly-by-night, I'm going to call them that, seminars where they come and teach you, you can buy an office building with your credit card. And it never quite seemed realistic to me. Um, most of them I left, you know, halfway through the day saying, man, this is just hogwash. This, I know you're not buying an office building with no money down on your credit card. This is ridiculous. So I went through a few of them and then I found a local group and they were mostly doing single family. So that was no interest to me, but they did have some commercial. They had some training and, you know, so I thought, okay, let me join this group and at least get some education. And I started, realized a little bit that their education was out of date a little bit. So I just became obsessive. Like I listened to podcasts like this. I listened to everything. I went to meetups. I went everywhere. And of course, the pandemic hit. And strangely enough, even though that was so life altering, you can get on meetups now and meet 100 people from all over the country. And you can accelerate your learning. Like, like it was incredible the amount of learning I got. Um, at just sort of attending and networking with all of these different groups. And I just became more and more obsessed with learning about it, um, which is part of the reason why now I want to switch over to active. I did get let go during COVID and, you know, I'm old, but not quite old enough to not have what I'm going to call a job. And being on the GP side really is a job, you know, where you're, you're doing the work, putting a deal together. And so it was just very appealing to me. And oddly enough, it's very similar business. So we bought back a couple of our underperforming franchises, right? And I would go in there and it was the exact same thing you do with an apartment building. I would go in there, we would add some CapEx to make the place a little bit better, freshen it up. We would improve the marketing. We would improve the team. We would improve all of our sales metrics. Uh, we measured a thing called EBITDA, not NOI, but it's exactly kind of the same thing. And, you know, the incremental improvement of this EBITDA is what made us multiplied and gave us a better value when we were bought out by private equity. So it's strangely enough, you know, I spent 20 years learning uh, just how to do that, opening new locations and all those skills were very strangely like completely complementary to what I'm doing. That's interesting. In some respects, I guess all all businesses have certain, you know, do have certain underpinnings and certain similarities and clearly differences too. But I totally understand what you're saying. 
Um, how many, just to get a sense of, of scale, and this probably has changed over the last few years, but how many meetups were you going to? Oh, so uh, I was going to like two a night, five nights a week. I was crazy. Um, my wife said, you work hard more now you don't have a job than when you did. <laughs> and I worked hard when I had a job. But again, I just found these ones. And, you know, I tried to go to ones that had some sort of education and then a networking. And then I would meet through the networking and I would learn and that would connect me to something else. Um, and I'm still doing it, um, you know, and I'm a bit like I said, I'm an obsessive person. So I live in Austin and it's not uncommon for me to drive to Houston, San Antonio or Dallas for an in-person now because we're back to in-person and you know spit bizarre right do a three-hour drive to go to a two-hour meetup to drive three hours back but luckily my car is loaded full of, of uh, podcasts and books on and uh, I do every other thing I listen to is a real estate book and then I try to listen to a personal development book and then about every five books I try to listen to something that's just interesting. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. It's funny because I try to read other books too, just because I burn out on real estate. It's what I think yeah. about like every second of every day. And, you know, at some point I go, I just got to read a novel just to like decompress here. Yeah. Because I as well, you and I have some similarities. I am obsessive too. Well, that's interesting when you say that you're driving to these meetups and that's impressive, man. I, I'm like, I'm feeling not worthy because there's a <laughs> bunch, I'm in the Bay Area and there's like one in particular that I'm on and they're like, honestly, maybe 45 minutes for me, if that. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. And yeah. uh, now you're putting me to shame. Okay, well, you're motivating me. Are a lot of these ones that you're driving to and a lot of the meetups in general, are they no longer doing uh, virtual, you know, now that everything's kind of free? Yeah, up? So, so one of them was doing two meetups a month and now they're doing one in person and one virtual a month. Um, and then I actually, we, we have a meetup here now in Austin and we only do in person and we're getting between 50 and 70 people the first Monday night of each month. And it's a really good mixture of like experienced and inexperienced and house flippers that want to learn. And so it's, uh, it's very interesting. And of course, nothing beats in person. And again, I started going back to, um, meetups. I remember I went to the first in-person conference meetup. And, you know, it was very, it was like 130 people and it felt packed, you know, where this is one that usually attracts like 500 people. And, you know, and then I just came back not too long ago from best ever, you know, and there was a thousand people there. That was the first time I'd got to one that had hit the thousand. And it was just incredible to meet that many people. It was also, it's exhausting too. You know, I went to that one and God decided to, I think it started on a Thursday and God 
decided to give me a cold like that morning. So, and so I got to that hotel to the Gaylord and other than like maybe five meetings that I had scheduled prior to and some people I really, really wanted to meet and, and spend time with. Other than that, I was in my room the entire time. Yeah, that happened to me. I went to Rod Cleef's last year and I, I wasn't feeling well. And my wife said, don't go, just don't go. You, you just don't go. And about 12 hours into it, I texted her and said, don't tell my wife, but she's right. <laughs> and I actually, I, you know, I, I went to two meetings, went and had a nap, went to two. I couldn't even go out to dinner. I woke up Sunday morning and changed my flight to the next flight home and thought, wow, I, I should, shouldn't have went. Exactly. Like I had a couple dinners scheduled and I felt so bad, for lack of a, a better word, that I just, uh, yeah. And and, I, and it bummed me out because I knew how good it was. Like there's so many people and I like you, I'm a sponge, man. I'm just trying to learn as much as I can. And I, I could just tell it was a unique opportunity. So, uh, you know, next year in Salt Lake City, I, you know, I and I and then there's like there's that nighttime event that I, I typically hate anything like that at night, but I could tell that wasn't a huge opportunity. So it's some bar or something. I, so I'll do that next year too, because yeah, I mean, there's like-minded people. Uh, well, that's, that's, uh, extremely interesting. Well, you know, what would you say, I guess, have you learned across all of your different investments? You know, what are you doing differently today in terms of how you approach what you decide to put money into compared to, let's say four years ago? Yes. Yeah, so obviously four years ago, I didn't care about cash flow. I had a good paying job. So I cared about multiplication of, you know, so is this two times my money? Is this one and a half, whatever this is. And so I've switched a little bit that I'm looking for a little bit more cash flow because I do need the cash flow. Um, and, you know, but again, I've, I've, and, and my first investment, which went full cycle and unfortunately paid no money and I actually volunteered asset managed it for 10 months was a deep value add project. And the next one I invested in was my first A plus property. <laughs> and cause I just did this gut reaction from, you know, wow, let me go to the next level and maybe the wind's not as big or it takes a little longer, but it's definitely gonna cash flow and uh, keep some things happening. And, um, you know, so I switched around and then I've changed into different asset classes just again to try to um, spread out and I call it earn and learn. So I, I did my first retail investment. Again, my timing is always impeccable. We closed March 15th, 2020. <laughs> um, and, you know, 15 days later, the entire plaza, but the liquor store, it's always great when they keep liquor stores open, but Tiff's treat, you can't get a cookie, but you can get a, a bottle of whiskey. Um, it's just bizarre, but anyways, um, and now that one though, that they recovered and the last six quarters, we've been at least getting a 5% cash on cash. And then I also, the pandemic made me think medical. So I had a friend who bought a medical center and I invested in that deal. Um, you know, and it was one of those ones, it's a mixture of the urgent care and some providers and that, you know, that just sort of rewokened my interest in that space. Um, because it was obviously such a high demand. And then I always wanted to get into storage. And a friend of mine brought a deal to me um, that's in Charlotte, just outside of Charlotte, which I know is a massively growing location. I have a brother that lives there. So the combination of my friend of mine brought me the deal. The deal looked very solid. I was getting into a new asset class and the, the guys on the main developers super like approachable and answering questions and doing things and my brother lives there so now it's definitely a business trip 
um, to go to Charlotte and visit my brother. And in fact, I'm going to Dan Hanford's meet up there. Um, and for the first time, it's a new build. So at least I'll go see it. it I think they've started construction now. So it'll be interesting to see that. Well, I hope the IRS isn't listening, but you know, I, I've got brothers in every city in this country as far as my travel uh, write-offs go. But anyway, I digress. Let me go all the way back to that first, uh, not to mention sisters and cousins. But anyway, the full cycle deal that you said you didn't made you didn't make anything on, which you're pretty honest and tongue in cheek about that that you asset managed. What what was that asset? So that was a multifamily. It was a hundred and seventy six door deep value ad. It was in San Antonio, and a couple of things that were wrong with it: they did not have enough capex in the budget for repositioning. Um, they underestimated how hard it was to what I'm going to say, reposition the property. And they kind of only partially got the reposition done. And then, of course, COVID just kicked us while we were down. So we were starting to make really good headway. And then, boom, COVID hit. And it was just super struggle all the way through. Um, you know, And then, then we had to do, you do a big turn of tenants because there were a lot of people not paying. And it just, it really, it really suffered. And then... They started deferring maintenance, which again, when you defer maintenance, it only gets worse. And so all of a sudden, it started snowballing, and and it took. A, they actually managed to sell it, and it took so long to close on the property that all of this deferred maintenance turned into a real issue, and ended up with like an over eight hundred thousand dollar retrade at close. Um, but they knew they had to close and get out, and I think that eight hundred twenty thousand dollars was at least all of our profit. Who, who bought it? I don't even know. They didn't disclose the buyer. And I, I was sort of by then, I would just, please just make this thing be over and let me emotionally move on and I've got my money back. And, you know, even though I say, oh, asset management was all horrible, I could never have paid for this experience. Um, I couldn't have paid for it at all. Like I learned a ton, um, you know, and we went in there I was helping an asset manager who ended up getting terminated. Then I was doing the asset management and they decided to fire the property management company. And so I was, we were self-managing and then the pandemic came. So I had more time, but it was tougher. And it was just like a series of events happened. And, um, you know, at, at, but again, I couldn't have learned any of that any other way. And I got to switch my status to professional real estate person, which was different because I was actively managing an asset. And so that was the year I got let go. And because of being a professional real estate status, at least I got the tax I paid back. So uh, at the end, it all, in theory, I did win, even though I didn't make money off of that investment. And I learned, I learned way more. I mean, you know, you couldn't have gone to school for what I learned. Yeah, I hear you. You know, you could learn a lot from books and seminars and all that, but there's nothing like doing it. I, I'm not looking for names, but who is the they that you joined in that in that partnership? Was that? So it was actually a, a deal sponsored through one of the coaches at my mentoring program. And now he had some deals that did really well. He had a couple of deals in a row that didn't do really well. I'm still in a couple of investments with him. Um, one just went full cycle and I made my money. So, you know, it was just, they did, they weren't equipped to take on, they underestimated how big the challenge was, I think is the way I'm going to outline it. And then they just didn't have the infrastructure to, 
to, and, and the cash to, you know, to, to go up that big hill. How, how long had that coach been in the uh, multifamily business? You know, about five years and again, had some really good successes. So, you know, again, that that's a bit worrisome. Um, and, you know, and I've certainly been more selective of who I invest with and uh, what I do. But, um, you know, um, it, it's just who you give your money to is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a fun conversation. You know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell has the 10,000 hour rule, which is not rule, but the 10,000 hour concept, which is that it takes 10,000 hours to learn anything. And 10,000 hours equates to five years of 2000 hour work weeks. So you're familiar with this? Yes, I am. Okay. I think the 10,000 hour concept is completely wrong. And I think that it's 20,000, if not 30,000 hours. And I'm not trying to be cute, but, uh, you know, my main business has been advertising my whole career. And if I look, and I, and I had my own business since I was 27, if I look back now, and, and suffice it to say, I'm way older than 27 now, but if I look at what I knew after five years, and I worked more than most people. So, you know, my five years was more like 12,000 hours. I didn't know, pardon my bad language, I didn't know jack shit compared to what I know today or, you know, 10 years later, et cetera, et cetera. So the guy that has 10,000 hours in real estate to me, it's not an automatic no, but it's far from an automatic yes. But anyway, uh, I'm more curious to know more about you. And so, okay, so so I pardon the digression, but that sounds that whole experience sounds like actually, frankly, fascinating to me. It is. And then I actually want to make another point that I've also done very well on a couple of new hungries. I'm going to call them new hungries because I consider myself a new hungry. Like I'm going to live and breathe this. I put my own money in it. And I am here to prove myself. Um, and I think that's a, a fairly huge, like once you know somebody like that and you get to know their personality, um, you know, like, like I am not going to sleep until I know the investor money isn't at risk, um, let alone making money. And so I think there's that other side, right, to find those, I'm going to call them diamond in the roughs. And you got to be very careful because experience is huge and they need to have some experienced people join their team. But there's a lot to be said for somebody that is really hungry and wants to grind out a deal to make your money. And I actually think some of those features are going to be very powerful um, during this next turn, right, where management versus luck of big rent increases is going to save your project. Uh, I hear you loud and clear. For me, given that I have, you know, one thing I've learned, cause I'm just learning too. Like, I mean, you, you know more than I do cause you've been doing it longer. I've been really putting the pedal to the metal. I've been investing in real estate for 20 years, but not in a really a meaningful way. And it was a, a sideline at best cause I as well had a different source of income. So I didn't even pay attention to it. But in terms of, I guess my, where I'm really putting the, the pedal to the floor in terms of my learning in an organized way. It's really been the last couple of years. And what I have learned amongst many other things is that there are virtually infinite number of, of people to invest with and, and deals to invest in, not literally, obviously, but very, so that to me, it's becoming about just ruthless exclusion. Yeah, uh, I, and, and to me, it's like, I just, just personally, and I'm not dismissing what you're saying, but to me personally, I probably would pass on that because there's just a risk and 
somebody's hunger won't necessarily save certain mistakes. But, but what I'm not here to, um, to debate. I, I think we're on the same page on that retail property. Uh, what's the nature of that? What what kind of reach? Is it grocery anchored? Is it what market and all that stuff? Yeah, so it's up in Plano, Texas, and it's basically was what I'm going to refer to as an outdated strip mall um, that had a weak restaurant tenant, and the goal was to switch out to a stronger retail tenant. And so, not 100% sure we got there completely. And the play there was very similar to multifamily, only different because it's retail. So what it was, was um, none of the leases were on triple net. Triple net, basically, if, if you don't know anything about it, basically the tenant is responsible for all of the expenses and you limit your risk, right? So if the parking lot needs to be done, we fix the parking lot, the tenants pay for it and it's part of their deal. Um, and, and so, and then it's the strength of the tenants, you know, can they afford it if something happens and all the different things. So the goal there was to turn this to a, a stable triple net real estate play. So a strip mall that everybody got switched to triple net and to the sponsor's credit, what they did was they used the big pandemic. So a lot of people were shut down for three months and instead of trying to chase that rent, they chased the new lease that was triple net. And so they didn't increase the rates, but they got the triple net leases. Um, unfortunately, the only person who didn't stay was the least affected tenants, the liquor store. Um, he gave his notice last month. But now you create this more stable asset that once we fill the tenant with the liquor store, you can sell it to somebody else. And, and lower expectations sounds like a, a strange thing, but it's less risk. Always less risk gives less reward. But, you know, this thing, you, you have no surprises because everything that could be a surprise, the tenants have to pay for. Um, and your only surprise is if somebody goes bankrupt and you can't get your money out. So it, 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 I think it's still going to be a good play, you know, because big retail's really hurting, like malls and stuff, but strip centers are not hurting. They, they bounce back pretty quick. Yeah, dog groomers, barbers, nail shops. Yeah, tiffs treats like a tenant, you know, great maintenance, you know, great anchor tenant, good solid franchise model. Restaurants, there's stuff you're 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 never going to eat on on Amazon. I mean, so yeah, how many tenants are there? In, in- it's a twelve tenant, so it's not a big 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 center at all. When was it built? Um, boy, like twenty years ago. So it's been around for a while. And it hadn't been updated for 20 years either. So they did some new signage, you know, just spruced it up, make it look a little more modern, you know, resurface the parking lot, um, just a few things to make it look more appealing. And that, of course, attracted better tenants and or better traffic. And there is kind of like it's in an area that the city has actually taken some of our land and will pay for it. And they're making pedestrian walkways, which will dramatically increase the value of the property because now you have people on foot walking by. That sounds awesome. You know, I, I just, um, you know, like look, I watch and read and all that kind of stuff, kind of like I'm sure some of the same stuff that you do. And I was just watching a podcast yesterday with John Chang of Marcus and Millichap. I think he, everybody knows who that guy is. But I, I think it's kind of conventional thinking at this point that like if you just look at all the different asset classes in alternative and specifically real estate that like grocery anchored or strip retail in Sunbelt states is kind of like the one 
maybe there's another one, but the one asset that's like undervalued because the underlying, the intrinsics are still as strong as they ever have been, but it's gotten, uh, it's gotten brushed with the same, the same, it's been stroked with the same brush is just, you know, malls and retail in general, but it's really a different animal. So it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get it. Well, dude, how, how did you meet the sponsor on that deal? Again, that one is the same guy that my deal didn't work well. So clearly, you know, he's performing well on that one and he lives in his, his office is in the Plano. So again, he found it off market by just networking with uh, people in his neighborhood. So again, you know, I got lucky. So I did five investments with him and I think I'm going to get lucky on three and do okay on one other one and then not make money on the other. So on an aggregate, I'm still okay. This is, this is, this is the same guy that was in the San Antonio apartments. That's correct. I yeah. see. All right. That's cool. Hey, you're, you're a, you're a kind man and uh, you know, you, you know, you're not striking them out because of that one deal. And so that, that's kind of cool. And how, how's where's that medical, complex and and how big is that and how's that going yeah so that's in mesquite texas it's a new investment that just happened um interestingly enough you know so you want to talk about triple net on steroids so not only does the doctor's practice have to guarantee the lease he personally has to guarantee the lease so not only do they have to go to business being whatever provider of medical services they are they have to personally go bankrupt too so you want to talk about double hedged bet, man. And that one is where my retirement money is. So it's not a huge windfall. It's a 10% pref, only no upside. But boy, what a safe place to put some retirement money because they just, they can't go out of business. I mean, unless their whole life is destroyed, right? And, um, and it has uh, six tenants within that space. It's Mesquite, Texas. And it was missing a tenant, which is filled now. And, uh, you know, they did again, it was an older one that needed some refreshing and again, timing right with everybody needing medical services and big places like hospitals, not almost wanting to do it anymore. Right. And so, you know, all the great timing and I think, uh, they'll do well and I hope to invest in more of these. A 10% pref on a deal like that, and I know you said there's no upside, and I'm in some of those too. I'm not in a medical, in, in any medical buildings. I would like to be. It sounds like very, very, very risk adjusted. But, you know, 10%, you know, again, a lot of younger people that have just been like, you know, kind of came around in the last five to 10 years think, oh, everything's going to be an 18% IRR. Um, yes, historically, that's a fantasy to, to think that that's something that happens consistently. So to get 10% on your money is actually extraordinary, you know, without any upside and and very little downside risk. So, you know, I, I've done some of those deals in apartments too, and, um, you know, I'm not regretting and you still get, you know, you still get the depreciation, uh, which is, you yeah. know, so this one, you don't get the appreciation, but on no, my de- depre- depreciation. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. You don't get the depreciation uh, okay. of your IRA money. So again, this was a nice place. And this one wasn't a, a, an appreciate depreciate. Like it, they didn't do a cost segregation on this one or any of that stuff. And which is interesting. It's just the way the deal was structured. But, um, you know, it, uh, again, it's, it's, it's a great safe way to put some of my money. Um, cause even when you're a pref on, apartment complex, 
that's only in reference to the order you're paid, right? Which is still this, but everybody's just second to debt. That's it. And then the GPs are third to debt. And that puts you in a nice spot. <laughs> On, again, apartment complexes, yes, they make money and they're done, but this is secured by, you know, double guarantees. Um, pretty risk low. low. Yeah. For, and the other thing, it's almost like, you know, I'm acting like I know what I'm talking about here, but I really don't. But I, I just, I'm extemporizing. So bear with me, Trevor, but I'm just thinking out loud that there's almost a retail component, meaning that their physical location is, you know, they've got clients and that are, you know, that, that are seeing them because of where they are, because they live. And so for them to like uproot and move like five miles away is almost like starting their practice from scratch again. Exactly. Exactly right. And also where it is, again, it's a smaller market, but it's an emerging market but there's not a major hospital nearby. So again, having it, it has an emergency care component with it. Um, so, you know, which those have gotten so much more use, especially lately during the pandemic and all the way along. And just, just that convenience of it's, you know, it's just around the corner from where I live. I'll be honest, I've done it three times now since the pandemic. Just, I can't get into my own doctor and I go to one of those walk-in clinics. It's uh it's a new phenomenon that's growing a lot. Interesting. You know what? There's always something else to invest in. And, um, you know, interesting. Yeah, I, I would do a deal like that. Why, 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 you know, why not? I've been doing recently a couple just hard. I'm, I'm investing in, I think you have too. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm investing in a couple, you know, debt funds. One, I haven't pulled the trigger, but I think I'm going to next week. First lean on commercial properties, mostly multifamily, 50%, 50 to 60% loan to value in a 10% payment. And and what I like about it is, you know, the liquidity that I can end it after a year or whatever, as opposed to a piece of real estate where you're in it for, you know, five, seven, or, you know, could be eternally. So I, are you in any of those? So I have one that's similar to that. And actually it went longer than the year because it took them longer to get, get, to get everything in place. But so it was a corporate back, basically debt thing for the infrastructure that's required for land development. So they're going to put 100 townhomes on it. And so what they needed is, well, I'm going to call it in reference a hard money loan almost that they backed by their corporation. But they, you know, they needed the money off and it was supposed to be for a year. Now we're going to probably be 18 months by the time they're out. And again, you had the option to roll it into the next level. So into the new 100 townhomes that are built the rent or you can pull out. And the only difference there was is it comes as ordinary income versus capital gains. But you could roll the ordinary income into the other deal and then not not have it at all go against your um, your your return. Uh-huh. But again, again, sixteen percent, uh, and that one came. I was trying to buy a deal, and then literally I took all the money out of the stock market, and like that morning, that afternoon, the deal crashed, and the next day I got this email with exactly what I pulled out, offering sixteen percent for a year, and I went, well, okay. <laughs> Timing with everything on that. What is the nature? I don't need to know the name, but what's the nature of the corporation? Is it a real estate company? Yes. Yeah, so it's a big development company. They have uh, quite a few, you know, they they, they probably have 20,000 apartments all across America. And this was a new development. Um, and it was actually um, a firm that I'd done a non-real estate investment with had basically partnered up with this 
this real estate developer. You know, 16% is phenomenal. I would say one of the better deals I'm in. I usually don't talk as much, by the way, Trevor, on these podcasts, but for some reason I'm talking way too much. But one of the best deals I'm in is I get 11% on my money and I get five. And what these guys are doing, they're flipping multifamily properties. They're not they're not operating them. They're finding them and they're smaller. They're like six unit in a perfect world, as many as they can get because the bigger the deal, the more they make. But typically six unit buildings, 12 unit buildings that they're buying for, let's say 300 grand, 400 grand, and they're flipping and making a hundred grand on. So they're giving me 11% of my money and then I get 5% on the profit. And this year on the low side, and I'm going to make 20%. That's like extreme. Extraordinary. I mean, with stocks, um, and I'm not one of these people to say, oh, the stock market's A, B, C, or D, because, you know, people have done, I mean, if you would have bought Apple in 1990 and put 10 grand in, it's worth $40 million. So I think it's moronic to say the stock market isn't, but it's all appreciation, right? So, but my point was, you know, dividend paying stocks, you know, I mean, I, you know, 3% is a good dividend, right? I mean, that's a good dividend and you're paying taxes on it. And so to get 20% on an alternative investment is attractive. <laughs> what more can I say? Yeah, no. And I did a deal here in Austin where I was just an 11% prep. Um, it was an interesting one too. Again, same sponsor and I did okay. They bought a 28 unit apartment complex and converted it to condominiums. And of course, the pandemic just threw it for a loop because so they bought an underperforming asset evicted an eightplex, renovated it, started trying to sell condos, and then nobody could get a mortgage, all the lending choked up. Then you couldn't evict people. When you could evict people, you couldn't get a permit. When you get a permit, you couldn't get the supplies. But real estate in Austin is so crazy. Um, this deal is going to do phenomenal. So they were selling them like 18 months ago for 282000 and the last six have sold for over 450000 unbelievable. The guy that does my wife's hair, and again, I'm in the Bay Area, and this goes back probably 15 years ago, uh, or maybe not 15, but probably like in the financial crisis, probably 09, 10, something in there. He bought a foreclosure or a short sale, one of the other, one of the others in Austin, he paid, I believe, 40 grand. And if I'm wrong, it ain't by much. I mean, I think he literally, and it's worth like 450 grand now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, you know, his only regret, obviously, he didn't buy more of them. So it's amazing what timing will do. What would you say, Trevor, is the most important lesson you've learned? So the most important lesson I've learned is the quality of the sponsor. So make sure you're investing with a quality sponsor. You understand what your asset class is and where is your investment, right? Is it a deep value add? Is it a forced appreciation? Is it a you know, cash flowing asset? Just making sure. But for me, the sponsor is everything. Yeah, the sponsor, words of wisdom. I've, I've had a guy tell me that's a real estate professional around here that's been doing it you know, 25 years, he says, doesn't even matter what the pro forma, doesn't matter what the splits are. None of that matters. It's all the sponsor. Because if the sponsor is the right person, all the rest of that stuff's going to be what what you need and what you want. Well, how would, uh, Trevor, how would one get a hold of you if they were so inclined to want to uh, engage you in a conversation? 
Yeah, so I'm very active on social media. So you can find me LinkedIn and Facebook, K Trevor Thompson. My company is called Niagara-Investments. So the website is Niagara-Investments.com. Guess where that comes from? I'm from Niagara Falls. And my email is KTT at Niagara-Investments.com. Um, but I love talking about real estate. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, I'm more than happy to have a conversation. Trevor, it's been a fantastic conversation and comparing notes. And uh, I look forward to being in touch with you. Yeah, it was awesome to get to know you better. Yep. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>